Jonathan here is going to be playing such sweet licks that they would get to the center of a Tootsie Pop in one go. This show has explicit language and most probably has mature themes. Oh hey there, welcome to Dexplanations. I'm Dexter Sorensen. What happens in this show is I look something up on Wikipedia and explain it to a guest. Generally, David Gerondale. How you, David? Hey, Dex. How's it going? Hey, it's doing well. It's a good day. It is a good day. Yeah. What are we learning about? Fossils. Fossils? Yeah, I kind of thought you'd be excited about it. I am pretty excited about this. This sounds fun. All right, cool. We're going to talk about how fossils are formed. We're going to talk about some types of fossils. We're going to barely hit on preferential factors. And then we're going to talk a little bit about how fossils are dated. Okay, cool. All right. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So uh, the most common type of fossil is uh, happens via permineralization. Permineralization. Okay. So, so yeah, an organism gets buried soon after they die, and the vacuous spaces, or the spaces that are filled with liquid or gas during life, get filled with mineral-rich groundwater and then solidify into the fossil they become. Okay, so basically the groundwater, groundwater is slowly seeping through um, the the vacuous spaces in this organism's tissues and um slowly the water is depositing minerals as it goes it's like Mm. mineral heavy water and it deposits little bits of crystals within within cells within yeah within within, cells and like bone um mm, yeah exactly yeah and uh so this mostly happens in three different types uh there's silification and uh that's just where cells and minerals uh, uh, get replaced with silica. And there is pyrotization, uh, which happens in marine and clay environments that have a lot of sulfur. And the sulfur causes the fossils, the material to transform into pyrite. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Which is fool's gold, of course. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then there's carbonate mineralization. And, uh, most commonly these are coal balls. And, uh, Basically, what they are is they're like balls that look like that are basically coal, and uh, they're mostly fossils of plants and their tissues. But it's just like maybe hundreds or thousands of plants that are just like turned into just like one fossil ball. Okay, so like basically peat, yeah, like ancient, ancient peat, like yeah, un, un like not something that is any more recognizable as a plant, but like ancient undecayed plant matter yeah. that then ended up so deep underground that it transformed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's permineralization. Um, so even, okay, so coal deposits, that's a type of permineralization? Yeah, I think so. Wow. Okay, yeah. so I guess if, I, if we're wrong in the comments, it please correct wrong. us. Yeah. But that... That's an interesting yeah. uh, fact, if it turns out to be <laughs> a exactly. fact. I do such good such good research in this show. Such good. Um, then uh, after permineralization, we have replacement, and that's when shells and bones or something else are completely replaced by minerals. The slower it happens, the better preserved the microstructures will be. The slower it happens. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I was having a hard time figuring out what the real difference is between replacement and permineralization. And uh, it seems to be that in replacement, it's complete. Also, I think in replacement, you're not filling in the spaces between the structure. You're actually replacing the structure. So, like, calcium 
you know, calcium, of course, dissolves quite easily. And so, um, for instance, the reason a lot of caverns form is because if, if water has even a little bit of acid in it, it'll dissolve limestone. And so water that has CO2 dissolved in it becomes carbonic acid, and that can dissolve bone um, in very, very tiny amounts. Okay. And I imagine it, you know, if that water has carbonic acid in it and maybe some un- other minerals, it picks up the calcium and maybe deposits something as a result of having picked it up. Yeah. You know, some, that, some that, something comes, uh, uh, something precipitates out of distillation, basically. That follows. Um, yeah, so then there's petrifaction. And uh, when I Googled petrification, or when I Wikipedia petrification, it redirected to petrifaction, but petrification wasn't autocorrected. So uh, I huh, think I've it could be... I've always called it petrification, but more accurately, it's petrifaction? Petrifaction. Okay. Um, so it's actually a mixture of replacement and mineralization or permineralization. So the original material gets replaced and the original pore spaces gets filled with minerals. Okay, that makes sense because when you look at, for instance, like, like a petrified wood, petrified wood, if you get like one common. of those nice cross sections where you see the tree rings, it's clear that all, it's all mineral now. Like yeah. there's there's no empty cell spaces. There's no porous um porous areas it's all just been replaced with rock yep all of it but in a structure that is mimics the tree's original living structure exactly yeah and like it's the same if the slower it happens the better and so what's interesting about fossils when you really think about it is we tend i think the general public tends to think about them especially bones as wow this is the bone of a living thing. That, like, it used to be inside a living thing. Not when at all. That's not true at all. It's actually the Earth's processes have made an almost exact replica out of totally new material. Mm-hmm. Everything that made up the bone is now gone, dissolved into the soil, in the oceans, God knows where, in you. Probably yeah, if like that, the way the way things go, things are so vigorously recycled that you have more dinosaur material in you than a fossil does. Yeah. Um, and that's what the really interesting thing is. They're really a carbon copy, not a preservation. You're not preserving yeah. the material. You're no, actually just copying its form. And uh, yeah, that brings us to the next uh, way fossils are formed, which is casts and molds. So uh, an organism is completely dissolved, and the space left behind in the rock, when filled with minerals, the organism-shaped hole is called an external mold. Okay. So, uh, so like if you see, yeah, if you see like a shell, something's shell, like an ammonite pressed into what looks like a like a a clay or something, and you see like a mineral um, deposit in the shape of the ammonite, that would be that. That would be an external mold. And when it is filled with minerals, it's a cast. So, like, if you had the shell and then the shell was filled with minerals. Okay, okay. And that would be a cast mold, a okay. cast type of fossil. Interesting. So, if so, for instance, when we find, like, dinosaur footprints that are preserved, it's a, if, it's a mold if we find um, basically, like, maybe a, a sandstorm blows over an area and uncovers some exposed rock. And you see, like, pressed footprints into the rock and their mm. empty relief prints. That's a mold. And it would be a cast if those were prints were maybe filled in with a mineral that was discrete from the minerals around them. 
Yeah, I think right? so. Right? Like, yeah. if, if that footprint were filled in with some sort of mineralization that was discrete from what was around the footprint, that would be a cast. Yeah. Okay. And uh, they can also happen in tar pits. And, uh, like, for example, in the La Brea tar pits, crude oil seeps up from fault line fractures, and the tar would get covered with water and leaves. And it would, like, just animals would go in there and get some water and just, like, and just like get stuck and then oh my goodness because the water the yeah, water it looks, could, the, it the, looks the, like the you could actually could like make maybe make a barrier over um the the oil and then the water could float on top mm-hmm. but if they disturb that barrier the water they, they get into the oil and they just start getting and then ugh. and then uh predators would see would see free game and jump in to try to get him and get stuck too wow so it, I, I mean that means there's a, just a ton of stuff in the Lebray tar pits, then. Uh, yeah, like tons of stuff. They actually found one human oh. in the Lebray tar pits. It's a partial skeleton of a woman, and she was found with a domesticated dog. Holy! And she was dated crap. to be about ten thousand years old. Wow! Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, another thing is uh, ice. Wowzers! Yeah, so like okay. ice actually has the best preserved fossils. Like Utsi the Iceman, we've mentioned him on the show before. Oh, um, I see, because that's real preservation. Yeah, and actually, technically, he, he, he's, he's, technically he's, he's not a fossil. Technically, he's, a he's not a fossil. He's a natural mummy. Okay. Um, and possibly a sub-fossil, but we'll get into that. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, you have mammoths that have their DNA, inta- like, most somewhat intact. Right, and um, they're, yeah, I from, mean... Um, not too long ago, I know there was a diners club um, that had the chance to dine on uh, mammoth meat that was preserved in ice. Oh, shit. Yeah. Also, um, fossils can be preserved in amber. You've seen this typified in Jurassic Park. Um, and, like, basically what happens is uh, insects and spiders most most likely get stuck in tree resin, which then becomes fossilized. And uh, if fossilized tree fossilized tree resin is called amber, and if it has uh, insect or something inside of it, it's called it's said to have an an inclusion. Oh, okay. Well, so a, amber a, with an inclusion usually is, means a fossil. Okay, yeah. because like with most gemstones, an inclusion is a bad thing. Yeah, but um, with amber, like a diamond with an inclusion means that it usually has like a cloudy part somewhere inside, or huh. like maybe a crack deep inside it somewhere where you can see a flaw yeah that's what an inclusion usually means is a so flaw. like the flaw of the amber is, is a that it has a little mosquito in it um did you happen to find out by what process tree sap becomes fossilized um time <laughs> <laughs> all right uh thank you but yeah sometimes it does get very small vertebrates like lizards does it really? Okay, Just they found very, very rarely. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's uh, what I have on uh, how fossils are formed. Now let's talk about some types of fossils. Uh, the one of the coolest types are index fossils, and uh, index fossils are used to identify geological areas or eras. They're used to identify geological eras, and uh, in order to be an index fossil. You have to be rapidly evolving, and you have to be widespread. So you have to be like all over the, kind of all over the globe, and rapidly evolving, so that like when they look at that fossil, 
it wasn't like an alligator that's been around for like ever. It was just only around in that era. And so they can actually use okay, those. Okay, so maybe like trilobites. Because I yeah, know we the, all have... trilobites are a very good example. Okay, because I know like, we all have the the iconic image of a trilobite, but in fact they came in a thousand different shapes like, and sizes. Pretty much all of them are uh, shell type structures. Okay. Also, probably um, because they preserve so well. Yeah, they're more likely to get fossilized because they are, they're very hard. Um, like soft tissue organisms are much less likely to get. Uh, fossilized, right? I mean, because they all, just decay. Yeah, it's 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 obvious to to anyone who enjoys dinosaurs that the whole dinosaur doesn't get preserved. It's usually just the bones. Mm. If you're lucky, maybe you get some like skin imprint or something. Um, if you're really lucky, but most of the time you just get bones, and it's because we're all soft. Yeah, and that shit just gets weathered away, eaten exactly. away. Exactly, it just gets eaten away. The bones have a off. chance at least to get buried and have those slow processes work on them. Much faster processes usually just tear us apart and disperse our molecules before well, anything like that can and happen. And we'll practically indefinitely. Like, no matter what, it'll happen. Like, with soft tissues. Like uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Soft like, tissues are... It, unless, unless you're basically like... like in covered in ice. Yeah, covered like in ice or like maybe peat... Um, somewhere where you're totally inaccessible and only slow geological processes have a chance to work on you. Because even even if bacteria can get to you, you're fucked. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, those are the index fossils. You got trace fossils, which are kind of like the cast and molds like, uh, that we were talking about with like dinosaur footprints. So they can be used also to study animal behavior, um, which is kind of cool because they can... They can uh, show how they like walked and maybe like structure of family or whatever. Right. Exactly. Like, like a, how they traveled and stuff mm, like that. And, uh, and uh, like, and really interesting type of trace fossil are coprolites. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah I you've love heard coprolites. of those. I, in fact, I was just talking about how much I want uh, a collection of these and like, I really only want them if I can label what they came from. If I have an idea of what they came from, because I really want What's, a shelf with the labels of what it came from. Um, but I'll let you introduce what coprolite is. Coprolites are fossils of shit. Yeah, it's like, just fossilized just poops. Fossilized poops. And uh, they're considered trace fossils because uh, they give evidence to animals' behavior. Yeah, of course, because it tells you like what, what they, they ate. ate. Um, yeah. You can, and, and part of the reason is, and you might you might wonder, like, how could you possibly, what, you're seeing vegetation in there, you're seeing meat, like you just said, like soft tissue doesn't last, and this is digested soft tissue, but what it really is, what it comes down to, is traces of carbon isotopes, usually, um, and because um, carbon isotopes show up in different degrees in plants and animals. And so you can look at something's poop um, and just tell by the amount of different carbon isotopes whether that thing was a herbivore a or, a, or, or a predivore. Uh, to a degree, like, of course. And a lot of and things like mix date, and match. a specific date. Um, but you can also tell just by like size and shape, too. Herbivores have a... Um, have mm. definite ways of defecating, and predators have different ways of defecating too, especially since herbivores aren't worried about their poop. It doesn't make them sick for the most part. Herbivores are triggered to poop when they eat. They poop uh, and eat at the same time, so they fertilize the areas where they eat. Okay. Carnivores and omnivores, their poop is toxic to them because we, we render down animal products. Yeah. Um, and that takes bacteria that can produce enzymes that make us sick, right? Yeah. Um, and so... We are afraid of our poop, and th- and it actually, like the way our poop is excreted, sometimes shows that. Huh, that's actually like, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, 
that's why like deer and rabbits and stuff they poop large quantities um a just bunch like of little, little balls that can just yeah, roll wherever they're full they go. of fiber very little water um and yeah you can kind of tell what something's diet is based on the size yeah. and shape of its poops so those deer poops they'll turn into trace fossils <laughs> uh, another type of fossil is a transitional fossil and uh, these are fossils that share characteristics with both ancestor groups and descendants of those groups. So uh, there's generally no way to tell how close they are to a point of divergence. But let me read what Wikipedia says. This is a really good quote. These fossils serve as a reminder that taxonomic divisions are human constructs that have been imposed in hindsight on a continuum of variation. Right. Okay, uh, so like an example of this would be um, how dinosaurs recently got completely reorganized and it's because now we're organizing them much differently based on some more genealogical evidence. Of course, we don't have the DNA, but we do have more methods than we used to. Um, We used to categorize them just based on this one type of bone. It was theropods and sauropods and it was all based on, for the most part, whether this bone was present or absent and what it looked like. And now we're finding that based on convergent evolution, there are some things that we thought were theropods that are actually sauropods that just have similar bone structures because they did similar things. They lived a similar lifestyle. They filled a similar niche. Yeah, much like there's a marsupial mole, right? And then Mm -hmm. there's a mole. Marsupial moles look just like our North American mole, like a a common Eurasian mole. Um, But they're not at all related. They're related Mm -hmm. to kangaroos and wallabies and possums. They're not related to moles. Yeah. But they look just the same because they live the same. And imagine if you have so much less evidence that you like only have one bone to look at. Yeah, for, one like, bone to look entire at for an entire member. organism yeah. or an entire um, uh, family of organisms. You have this one bone to go on to be like, whoa, this is a different yeah. family. It's, uh, so yeah, those are transitional fossils. And another type is subfossils. And this is one where the pro- fossilization process isn't complete. So they're, the reason why it might not be complete, they're either too new like less than 10,000 years, or they weren't buried in an optimal location for fossilization. Like maybe they got disturbed by a, a washout or something, yeah. like some partway through. Yeah, so like the main difference between fossils and subfossils is subfossils have organic material present, um, which can be used for radiotopic, radioisotopic dating and possibly for extraction of DNA. Okay, so my understanding of it, though, is that uh, uh, even under the best of circumstances, um, DNA can't really be expected to last even a couple million years. No, no. It's super fragile, and even under the best circumstances, I'm talking about, like, something frozen in ice. Um, Even using advanced technology, it's just really impossible to preserve such a fragile molecule for any real extended period of time beyond tens of thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. Most most of the time, fossils are considered to be fossils when they're over 10,000 years old. Okay, okay. So, like, that woolly mammoth in ice was a sub-fossil. Yeah. And Excellent. so is, okay. let's see. Um, and they're often found in uh, caves or shelters because in a cave, they can last a lot, things can last a lot longer. So, yeah, that was the types of fossils I looked into. And uh, let's talk a little bit about how fossils are dated. They're mostly dated by uh, strat- st- stratigraphy, stratigraphy, 
I think it's stratigraphy. Yeah, that sounds And uh, that's the science of deciphering the sedimentary record. Okay. Because as you know, uh, generally sedimentary layers are laid down horizontally. In what are uh, called strata. Yeah. So stratigraphy. Mm-hmm. And uh, newer on top of old, and that can be like fucked up by erosion and stuff. Right, right. And, I remember uh, geology seeing all sorts of fun ways in which it can buckle and fold. And even, yeah, and that's when it gets yeah. really interesting is when you see layers fold on top of each other. Yeah. Um, literally, yeah. And like, uh, weird. Different, different sediments can be laid down at the same time in different places on the surface of the earth. Oh, of course. Um, like, like you can see, you can see an event that happened. For instance, like the the eruption of Yellowstone. That is an event that you see everywhere in the geological mm, record. Not on top just of here all different America. types of sediment. Yes. Yeah. So uh, then, as we talked about, fossils are also dated by using index fossils, which are well known, uh, rapidly evolve, and are pretty much everywhere. And then. Uh, then they can also use radiocarbon dating for subfossils. And uh, radiocarbon dating like happens because radiocarbon is constantly being made by co- when cosmic rays interact with the nitrogen in the atmosphere. Okay. So uh, there's al- always some radiocarbon in the atmosphere. Which and is, then is it carbon? It's like 14C. Okay. So Because um, so carbon's normally like 16, I think, right? Or carbon twelve, carbon is yeah. normally twelve. So is carbon fourteen C? Is yeah, this, is 14 the type C of carbon is, isotope that they look for? Yep. Okay. And uh, so it cosmic rays interact with nitrogen in the atmosphere, and then plants breathe it in with, via photosynthesis. And uh, um, like and you it's were a talking about, isotope, it's a radioactive as isotope. Out, so it has a half life. It has a half life exactly, which is the time in which half of the ma- that material will d- have decayed. Right, half of any sample. Yeah, and uh, for radiocarbon, that's about five thousand seven hundred and thirty years. Woo! That's a, I mean, that's not like <laughs> yeah. uranium, but that's still pretty pretty damn good. So you can really only use radiocarbon dating for around fifty thousand years accurately. Because okay, after because it's gone through so many half-lifes, half-lifes. there is so little of because it. Because that's it's... the weird thing about a half-life, too. And I don't fully understand how well, this it's, works. It's pretty It's pretty easy. Like, is it? Uh, okay. The first time, well, the no, I, first I time it goes through a half-life. Works, I don't understand why mechanically that works. Right? Like, why is it that it takes the same amount of time for 50% of the sample to decay... And then, then the next 50%, which is only 25% of the original sample. So it takes well, that second it, 25% as long to decay as the first 50%. Well, it's because it happens, I think, like intermolecularly. So like each molecule is losing the isotope at a constant rate. And so like when you have 25% of what's left, you still have 100% of what is left. Of, but I don't when you have 25 percent of what is, is there you how, still have 100 percent of what's left there how are I the think. molecules able to see, receive any sort of feedback on the sample size is what confuses me see i don't think it does at all but it must if if the half-life is so does it okay so no, maybe like i'm wrong then radiocarbon like, is being transformed then it's not radiocarbon anymore but the radiocarbon that's still there is being transformed at the same rate. Okay, but then that's what have, I think. But then you can't have a fifty thousand year span 
if it's half-life is 5,000 years, right? Because if it's half-life is 5,000 years and the second half of the sample decays as quickly as the first half, then its total lifespan is only 10,000 years and change. So what what is really going on is the first 50% of the sample decays in 5,000 years. Then the second 50% is now again subdivided and 50% of it, which is now 25% of the original, decays in 5,000 years. You now, after 5,000 years, take the total sample remaining, subdivide that in 50, or in half, and 50% of it will decay in 5,000 years. That's how I understand um, radioactive decay to work, radioactive half-lives to measure. Yeah, yeah. But no matter how much you have left, you still have 100% of what's there. Yes. So what you're saying, though, then, is that this, the the molecules are responding to the sample size because the molecules have to decay enough molecules. So what I'm saying is if, if you have two moles of a substance... Yeah. And... One um, gets turned into something and else. One and gets one turned left. into another one. Or So now in 5,000 years, one mole of carbon-16... Or sorry, carbon-14 has been turned into carbon-12. One whole mole in 5,000 years. Now that I only have one mole left, in 5,000 years, only half a mole should be expected to decay into carbon-12. That's what I mean by the sam- the molecules responding we'll, to the sample we'll, size. We'll do a full episode on half-lives someday. We need to. Yeah. Because they confuse the fuck out of me. Yeah. Uh, we'll <laughs> cut the last 10 minutes probably. Maybe, maybe. And that's it for this episode. Dexplanations is produced and edited by Jonathan Cunningham. Likely I got a bunch of things wrong. Email me about it at dexplanationspodcast at gmail.com. If it's warranted and I have time, I'll bring it up in a later episode or do a new episode about it. We don't have any way for you to support the podcast right now. We should have a Patreon up by the time we record the next episode. But please do go on and tell your people about Dexplanations and leave us a five-star review. You have really great taste in music. Bye now.